Uh, the observant among you will have noticed that in the little book plug at the beginning, I, um, I'm the author of a book which has radical in the subtitle. Uh, let me tell you that that was, uh, that was against my protestations, so, uh, so I am sometimes consistent. Can you be sometimes consistent? I <laughs> what should you do <clears throat> if you want to serve more in your local church? Now, no doubt there are plenty of things to be done on a Sunday morning. Uh, There are chairs to be set out, there are welcoming new people, uh, music to be played, leading in prayer perhaps, serving drinks, teaching in the Sunday school, all great things to be doing, but what about the rest of the week? What can we do to serve in our local churches throughout the week? Or let's ask the question in a different way. What would it mean to serve like Jesus? What does Jesus-shaped ministry look like? Well, in the passage that we read in Luke 7, Jesus answers that question. He himself tells us how he conducted his ministry. He gives his own kind of summary of his core activities. This is what Jesus says, the Son of Man, that's his way of referring to himself, the Son of Man came, how would you finish that sentence? The Son of Man came preaching the gospel, maybe. Well, yes, that's true. Son of Man came healing the sick. Well, again, true enough. The Son of Man came casting out demons. All good options, but that's not what Jesus says you've got your Bibles open in front of you, look at verse 34. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. What was the core activity of Jesus? Well, according to Jesus, it was eating and drinking. And actually, that's what we see in Luke's gospel. There are at least nine big set-piece meal stories in Luke's gospel, and actually lots of other references to food. So um, someone has uh, said that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Indeed, if you look at the, look at the accusation that's made against Jesus in uh, verse 34, his opponents say he's a glutton and a drunkard. Now what is a glutton? Someone who eats too much. What is a drunkard? Someone who drinks too much. Now, I don't think Jesus was either of those things. But clearly, there was enough evidence for that to be an accusation against him. He was sufficiently committed to eating and drinking for people to make that kind of accusation against him. Meals were not incidental to his life and ministry. They were at its core. And so the meals of Jesus are the context in which his ministry takes place. But what I think we're going to discover is that they're also the context in which his identity is clarified. We're going to discover who Jesus is around the table. And we're going to discover too what it means to follow him. I once spent a day with... uh, 
a minister of a, a church in a very rough part of Glasgow. And he was telling me the story of how he was sort of just standing out on the street in front of his church, and he met a kind of drunk wandering down the road, and uh, he invited the drunk to come in to the church to join them. And uh, the drunk guy's comment was, well, I'll, I'll come when I get my life sorted out. And my friend commented, said to me, how on earth did we give him the impression that church was for people who are sorted out? Yet that is what people think, isn't it? Church is for respectable people, for good people, for people who've kind of got it together. But that is not what they said about Jesus. Look again at verse 34. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The impression Jesus gave was that he was a friend of sinners. Messed up people liked Jesus. People whose lives were a mess felt at ease in his company. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is the Holy One of God, the Eternal Son. And people whose lives are broken, people who are notorious for their sin, they liked being in his company. They felt welcomed by him. That's what we see in Luke chapter 7. I want us to look at the three main protagonists in this story that we've just read out together. First of all, the gatecrasher who welcomes Jesus. Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood there behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So here is a woman who, as Luke says, has lived a sinful life. Not only that, it's interesting, Luke describes her as a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life. Did you notice that? She's not just a woman who lived a sinful life, but in that town. In other words, she's not some mysterious stranger who turns up out of the blue. This is her town. This is her hometown. Everyone's heard of her. Some of the men perhaps know her all too well. The women despise her. Some of them perhaps fear her. She's notorious. And what does she do in this story? Well, she gate crashes the party. She's not invited. And yet she comes. She ignores all the kind of normal social conventions because she is so desperate to meet Jesus. She risks shame. She risks violence. Can you just, you know, we've got, we we have a sanitized view of the Gospels. Can you imagine what is going on there? The risk that's involved. Just the the likelihood that at some point in this story she's going to get beaten. And yet she feels, feels compelled to come 
because of her love for the Lord Jesus. We don't know how, whether she'd met him before, whether they'd had any kind of conversation, whether perhaps she'd heard his preaching, but she has seen something in the Lord Jesus Christ that makes her ready to risk shame and violence in order to show her love for him. And as if that were not enough, Think about what she does when she meets Jesus, when she actually kind of finally makes it to him. She lets her hair down. Now in that culture, that was a precursor to sex. And then she wets his feet with her tears and rubs perfume in. It's an erotic act. Imagine the scene. This is, you know, this is a fancy dinner party. Everyone's on in their in, you know, in their best clothes and on their best behaviour. And in the middle of it, this woman, this notorious woman, starts treating Jesus as a prostitute might treat a client. I think she's expressing her love for him in the only way she knows how. She risks everything to love Jesus, to show her love for him. She's the gate crasher who welcomes Jesus. And then secondly, we meet the host who doesn't welcome Jesus. Look at verse 39 with me. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. If this man were a prophet, I I wonder if if Simon, when Simon kind of first invites Jesus over, he has an open mind. Maybe, you know, he's heard about Jesus, lots of stories buzzing around Galilee. Maybe Jesus is a prophet. And so Simon wants to find out more. Certainly Jesus probably is a bit of a celebrity, so Simon's pretty pleased that he's bagged this honoured guest. But he's intrigued. He wants to meet Jesus for himself. Maybe Jesus is a prophet. But it's a possibility that Simon soon dismisses. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now here's what Simon assumes. First of all, he assumes that a true prophet would be able to read people's hearts. And secondly, he he assumes that a true prophet would realize that this woman is a sinner. Now, on both counts, Simon is right. A true prophet can read people's hearts. A true prophet does know, recognize that this woman is a city, sinner. And that's what Jesus does. He, he can read people's hearts and he recognizes this woman is a sinner. But the thing is, Simon has another assumption. An even deeper assumption. And it's an assumption that's about to be blown out of the water. Simon assumes that the kingdom of God is for religious people, for moral people like him. It's certainly not for notorious sinners like this woman. But Simon is in for a massive shock. Look at how Luke describes the exchange between Simon and Jesus. I think it's brilliant. I don't know if you'd pick this up. In verse 39 we read, Simon said to himself. 
And then verse 40 begins, Jesus answered him. Do you notice that? Simon says to himself, Jesus answered him. There's a kind of conversation going on, a bit of to and fro. But the, 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 the amazing thing is, Simon's contribution is said to himself. It's just his little internal monologue. And then Jesus answers him, even though Simon has said nothing out loud. Simon thinks Jesus can't read people's hearts, otherwise he wouldn't be having anything to do with this woman. And Jesus answers him by reading Simon's hearts, by responding to what's going on in Simon's heart. Demonstrating that he can read people's hearts. But of course the real shock is this. Jesus sees the heart of this notoriously sinful woman and he sees the heart of this devout religious man and he loves what he sees in the heart of the woman and he hates what he sees in the heart of Simon. So why would this woman risk everything in order to be with Jesus? And why does Simon reject Jesus as a prophet? Actually, same answer to both questions. One word, grace. Why does she risk everything? Grace. Why does Simon reject Jesus? Grace. Look at how Jesus himself explains it in verse uh, 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? By the way, I think we can assume that Simon has noticed her. You can imagine everything, anyway, you know, you can just, everything must have just gone hush at the point where she starts uh, pouring, pouring oil on Jesus' feet. Do you see this woman? I came into your house, you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and has wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Simon is supposed to be the host of this meal, but he's not been a host. He's not welcomed Jesus. He's not given him any water for his feet. Uh, you know, if you walk in a dusty road in uh, sandals and you, you, you need, your feet need a wash when you arrive. He's not greeted Jesus in, the, in a kind of culturally normal way of giving someone a kiss. He's not poured oil on Jesus' head. He's the host who's not a host. And it's left to the woman to welcome Jesus. She's the true host in this story. Except she's not supposed to be the host. She's not even supposed to be a guest. She's the gatecrasher. The unwelcome gatecrasher has become the one who truly welcomes the Lord Jesus. Now why is that? Why has Simon failed as a host? Why has this woman become a host? It's because of what Jesus sees in their hearts. 
He sees in this woman someone who loves much because she has a very deep, profound sense of how much she's been forgiven. She recognizes the depth of her sin and she recognizes the deep, deep grace of God. And what does, Simon see, what does Jesus see in Simon's heart? Something ugly. A heart full of pride and disdain, scorn, self-righteousness, self-reliance. I guess we could say that the... Um, the gap between our sense of sin and our sense of God's grace, the bigger that gap, the more we will love. Now, by the way, I want you to have some sympathy with Simon. It's easy to make him out as the baddie in this story. Imagine a prostitute gate-crashing your dinner party and sitting in the lap of your honored guest. How would you react? I suspect the words, did you see this woman, would be redundant. Or imagine a prostitute or a drug dealer or an ex-convict attending your church. How would you react? I think it goes even deeper than this. I think Simon has spent years building a reputation as a righteous man. Years of effort. Years of self-denial. Years of rule-keeping. And yet still it feels precarious. That's how it is, isn't it? If you want to be seen as a righteous, upstanding member of your community, that's, that's an investment of time and effort. And yet you always feel a bit wobbly. It's like a game of snakes and ladders. You know, you, you're working hard, climbing up the ladders of, of religious achievement, of moral effort. All those prayer meetings you have to put in, for heaven's sake. But one false move... And you could find yourself tumbling down. And perhaps just for now, Simon feels like he's made it. A righteous man in the eyes of his community. But Jesus has come along with a completely different set of rules. Suddenly this woman has come in and she's playing the grace card. Advance to go and collect 200 pounds. Advance to God and be welcomed by him. Easy as that. The whole framework upon which Simon has built his life is tottering. His worldview is being flipped upside down. All the people he thought at the top suddenly at the bottom. All the people he thought were at the bottom are suddenly at the top. And that ladder that he's kind of painfully, slowly climbed his way up is kind of suddenly being kicked away. All that effort suddenly looks like a waste of time. We all have our ways of feeling good about ourselves. The little rules we use to look down on other people. You know, the, you know, you know Pharisees need sinners? Because they've got to kind of climb on somebody. They've got to look down on somebody so they can feel good about themselves. At least I'm not like those people we tell ourselves. You know, I, I, I acknowledge that I need God's mercy, but not as much as those people do. They need a whole load of forgiveness. 
Or maybe you, you know, maybe you say, at least our church doesn't do boring sermons like that conservative church down the road. Or at least our church uh, doesn't get all emotional like those, that charismatic church down the road. You can delete as applicable here. Look at verse 47. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now let me be clear. No one has been forgiven little. That's not the point Jesus is making here. Remember when Isaiah stands before the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, sees that vision of God, he cries out, Woe to me, I am ruined. It is literally, I am disintegrating. Perhaps we can persuade ourselves that we're not too bad when we compare ourselves with other people. But when we stand before the holiness of God, we are utterly undone. No one has been forgiven little. But what Jesus is saying is those people who think that they need little forgiveness simply don't understand God's grace and they simply don't understand their sin. And because they don't understand God's grace and God's holiness, because they don't understand God's sin, they don't appreciate God's grace. They receive nothing from God because it doesn't occur to them that they need to ask from God. And because they receive nothing from God, they have little to give. If your love is begrudging, if your service in the local church, or wherever it might be, if that feels like a burden to you, if your generosity is not instinctive, If evangelism has to be squeezed out of you like um, toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube, I think it's because you're proud. The difference between Simon and the woman is not just how they view Jesus, it's also how they view themselves. Simon has no sense of forgiveness because he has no sense of need. And what sense of need he has, he thinks he can meet through his own effort thinks God owes him. Maybe you do. Think too much of yourself and that, that, that pride is blinding you to the love of God and the grace of God. But here this woman, she is overwhelmed by her brokenness. She knows her life is a mess and yet she sees in Jesus someone who accepts her anyway. That's the secret of her love for Jesus. She has an overwhelming love for Jesus, a love, by the way, that overwhelms shame and risk. She has an overwhelming love for Jesus because she has been overwhelmed by the love of Jesus himself. And this woman, in the end, it's this woman's sin, her sense of her sin, that brings her to Jesus. Despite the cost of gate-crushing the party, despite the disapproving glares, despite the undercurrent of violence, her sense of her sin drives her to Jesus. Meanwhile, Simon's pride blinds him to the glory of Jesus, even though Jesus is sat around his dinner table. 
So we've seen the gate crusher who welcomes Jesus. We've seen the host who fails to welcome Jesus. What about Jesus? What does this story reveal about his identity? Again, look at verse 34. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That little phrase, the son of man, is an allusion to Daniel 7. Remember Daniel speaking many years before, looking forward to the Lord Jesus. He has this dream in which he sees four kingdoms personified as terrifying beasts. That war against God's people. Then finally the ancient of days, which is God, sits in judgment and the last beast is cast down. And then this is what Daniel says. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In other words, when Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man, he's actually making the most exalted of claims. He is claiming that he is the one to whom all the nations belong. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now that wasn't a problem for the religious leaders, not in of itself. They expected the coming of the Son of Man. The eating and drinking actually wasn't a problem. They expected that when the Son of Man, when the Messiah came, there would be a great feast. We'll think a little bit more about that tomorrow. But Isaiah had promised this magnificent feast. So they were fine with, with a Son of Man coming. They were fine with a feast. What they couldn't stomach was the guest list. In their mind, what, what invalidated what kind of made a nonsense of any claim by Jesus to be God's promised king was the people he ate with. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, by the way, with all due respect to HMRC, the, the issue with tax collectors wasn't just that they collected tax. They collaborated with the Roman army. That made them a kind of enemy of the people. More than that, they were an enemy of God. They were collaborating with this army that had come and defiled God's holy land. And so they represented, more than anyone else in that society at that time, the enemies of God. And the accusation against Jesus is that he is a friend of the enemies of God. A couple of chapters ago, he's just had a big banquet with um, Levi and all his mates, Levi the tax collector. Now what does Luke do with this accusation? How does he defend Jesus? Jesus has been accused of being a friend of sinners. What does he do to defend him? Nothing. In fact, quite the opposite. The very next story he tells is a story in which a sinner welcomes Jesus and Jesus shows his love for her. In effect, Luke is saying, you think Jesus is the friend of sinners? You better believe it. That's exactly what he is. Is Jesus the son of God? He can't be. Unless God's kingdom is far more gracious than anyone expected. Is Jesus God's king? 
He can't be. Unless in eating with tax collectors and sinners, he shows us God's love for his enemies. That God has come in the person of Christ to make peace with his enemies, to offer reconciliation to his enemies. Is Jesus the Son of Man, the one to whom all the nations belong? Yes, he is. And he's the friend of sinners. One day he will come in glory with the sound of a trumpet and a host of angels to judge the living and the dead. But first he came graciously, quietly, gently. He came eating and drinking. He came to be the friend of sinners. But the truth about Jesus is even more astonishing. That little phrase, a glutton and a drunkard, doesn't come out of the blue. It's a quote from Deuteronomy, from the law of Moses. Under the law of Moses, don't get any ideas by the way, parents. Under the law of Moses, if you had a persistently rebellious son, you could bring him to the elders and say, this son of ours is a stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then the men of the town are to stone him to death. Now, according to the religious leaders, what they're saying is, Jesus is just such a rebellious son of Israel. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a rebellious son of Israel who deserves to be executed. Now, there's a double irony there. First of all, Jesus is actually the faithful son of Israel. I mean, more faithful than any other son of Israel has ever been. We know that because Luke has already told us the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Sort of a mirror of Israel in the wilderness when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And Jesus in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, is faithful to God, whereas Israel was unfaithful. So Jesus is the faithful son of Israel. In fact, it's the Pharisees who are the rebellious ones. That's why I think Jesus says in verse 35, but wisdom is proved right by her children. In other words, well, we'll, we'll, we'll find out who is the faithful child. But here's the second irony in that little statement. That little accusation that Jesus is a glutton, a drunkard, an unfaithful, a rebellious son of Israel. Who is it in the gospel stories? Who is it who dies the death of a rebellious son of Israel? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who's executed. But of course he doesn't die for his own rebellion. Of course not. He's the faithful son. The only truly faithful son. No, he dies in our place for our rebellion. The very next verse in Deuteronomy 21 says, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. It's the verse Paul quotes in Galatians 3 to describe the cross. Jesus dying, bearing the curse, our curse, 
as rebellious children of God. The curse that we deserve is borne by Jesus in our place. Jesus, the faithful son, dies the death of a rebellious son. He takes the curse spoken to Adam and gives us the blessing promised to Abraham. He bears our curse and gives his blessing. And so Jesus truly is the friend of sinners. There is no better friend. Jesus himself says, greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for one's friends. If you see yourself in Simon, if you can see that you've been kind of climbing the ladder, trying to be good enough for God, or trying to impress other people, looking down on other people perhaps, then come, come to Jesus. Leave behind your pride and fear. Leave behind this fragile system that you've built your life upon and rest, rest in Jesus the faithful son who dies in the place of rebellious sons. Or if you see yourself in the woman, your sins are great, and sometimes it feels like they're going to crush you. Come to Jesus. Leave behind your shame and your guilt. Come and find refuge in him. Hear him say, as he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So we've seen the gatecrasher who welcomes Jesus. We've seen the host who fails to welcome Jesus. And we've seen Jesus himself, the friend of sinners. Finally, who are we called to be? Well, we are to be people who offer grace around the table. We can't welcome Jesus in the way that this woman welcomed her, uh, welcomed him. We can't uh, sort of uh, wash his feet or uh, rub perfume into them. But we can show a welcome to the people of Jesus. We can show a welcome to our neighbors. Now here's the lovely thing about the eating and drinking of Jesus his way of doing ministry. We can all do it. There is no one in this tent who cannot do this. You can all eat and you can all drink. We're not all preachers, at least not in the sense of delivering sermons. Can't heal the sick and cast out demons, certainly not in the way that Jesus did. But we can all eat and drink with people. We can all express welcome the welcome we offer around the table. There are lots of ways that people make Christian ministry complicated. They have their sociological models or their cultural analysis or their strategic frameworks. It's hard to keep up with it all sometimes. You're sort of poor Christian trying to make sense of everything and another book comes out and so on. But if you want to follow the strategy of Jesus himself, then here's what you need to do. Have meals with people. Simple. Sit around the table together. 
Now, by the way, if you're a lodger or you're part of a house share, then inviting people into your home will be a bit harder. But you can still go out for a drink or have a coffee with somebody, organize a picnic. In fact, Jesus himself wasn't inviting people into his home. He didn't have a home. He's still having meals with people. So accept the invite. That's your situation. Or even get yourself invited round, which is what Jesus does in Luke's gospel when he meets Zacchaeus. It's quite easy, by the way, to get yourself invited round. I'll give you some tips if you like at some point. (laughs) Or be a bit creative. We in our church we have two families. One uh, we have more than two families. We have we have (laughs) we have a family with of seven, and we have a family of eight. And my wife and I live in a very small house, and uh, we have an even smaller kitchen. It's the kind of kitchen where if there are two of you, you have to be very intimate with each other uh, beforehand, because you will be afterwards. Um, so how do we do hospitality with them? We just have to be a bit creative. We, we've done hot dogs, because you can just sort of hand those out, or we've invited them out for a picnic, or we've invited them for a barbecue on our allotment. You just need to think about it. But see, here's the lovely thing about it. You do it already. You know, th- think about this. What I'm calling you to do today, it's very easy to sort of stand on a platform and call people. You should do more evangelism. You should pray more. You should read your Bible more. And, you know, I know, I know what it's like. You're all thinking, where on earth am I going to find the time for, for more? You know, you, you, you feel the call. You're good Christian people. You, you feel, the, I do want to pray more. I do want to read my Bible. But where am I going to find the time for it? Well, I'm call- this, this evening, I'm calling you to do something that you already do. You all eat three meals a day already. That's 21 opportunities every week to show the grace of God to people around the meal table. Next week in the staff canteen, put your book down. Good Tim Chester book that you've just bought off the. <laughs> put that down and talk to one of your colleagues. Next week, invite a single person in your church or one of your elderly neighbors over to join you for a family meal. doesn't have to be a big performance. Just an ordinary family meal. But meals on their own, of course, are not enough. Your meals will only communicate the message of Jesus if you have a profound sense of his amazing grace to you. That you are a desperate, needy sinner and Christ is a gracious, mighty saviour. I, 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 I meet people from time to time who, who love the idea of community and then it quickly becomes clear to me that what they have in mind is kind of hanging around in coffee shops with cool, trendy, beautiful people. But when you eat with people, you, you're eating with real people, not some ideal of community. With all their problems and their quirks. The meal table is an opportunity to give up our proud ideals by which we judge others. And accept the real community that is created by Christ. By the cross of Christ with all its brokenness. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. 
I know it's very easy to think about your church and, and think of all the things that you would like it to be different, you know, all the things that are wrong with it. Please, just for a moment, think about what an amazing thing your local church is. This is, this is literally true, okay? This is not hyperbole. This is literally true. In my church, there is more racial diversity than the rest of our town put together. There are more non-white English people in our church than, than, than in the rest of the town put together. That is the power of the cross, bringing together different, diverse, disparate people and making us family. And we have an opportunity to enjoy that and experience that and model that and display that to the world. And there is no better way of doing that than around the meal table. Love the real people sat around your meal table. If you love Jesus because you are overwhelmed by his grace to you, if you love Jesus and you share meals, you will be doing great ministry and great mission, guaranteed. As the conversation flows, at some point or other, you will speak of Jesus and his love. And your words will be reinforced by your welcome. The welcome around the table. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that the power of your spirit, you would give us a profound sense of our sin together with a profound sense of your love to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gap between our sin and your love would be the measure of our love. That our love would kind of grow and grow to fill that gap. And that as we eat meals with people, as we welcome people, as we offer grace around the table, that that love would be communicated to a lost and broken world, to the glory of Christ. Amen.